Hello, and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York, that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening, and enjoy this week's sermon. Y'all, give your neighbor a hug. Your neighbor needs a hug right now. Go ahead and do it. Got the feels. Oh my gosh. Welcome, welcome, welcome again. My name is Russ. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for joining us on our first birthday. Um, Show of hands, just because I can't believe, like I'm I'm really, I'm choked up right now. Um, Who was here at the vision dinners way long ago? Who's some people? There we go. There was like six of us. There's some people in the back. Love it. Who started coming um, to Brooklyn Table? We met at Recovery House of Worship. There are a couple at Recovery House of Worship downstairs when all we had was a, a tapestry, that one right there, and twinkle lights. Those were our first two investments, um, if that says anything. And who started coming? We met here during the preview season. Okay, some more. Yep, yep. And then uh, who started coming over the last year? Launch. Love it, guys. Who's here for the first time today? Yeah, welcome, welcome. <laughs> uh, you'll never be clapped for ever again, just letting you know. Um, Thanks so much for joining us. As we say every time, uh, we are a new community of faith that believes no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. As I was reflecting on the last year, and even more than that, uh, the parallel that just kept coming to mind was that of hiking, you know? Um, And I know we have some New Yorkers in here, like, ugh, nature, I get it. Um, But uh, Anna and I, her being from the Pacific Northwest, we love to go hiking, and and hiking is one of those things, like, like any metaphor of a journey, right? You see the same looking trees, the same water, um, each little step. It feels the same. It's tough to, to, to think that there's any change happening. And then you step out of a clearing somewhere and you look down and you're able to see how far you've come and it takes your breath away, right? And I think that, that, that parallel works for so many things in life. But I was really reflecting on that and giving thanks to God today of um, watching that video, seeing how much stuff has happened over the last year, how much God has done knowing so many of your stories and knowing what God has done and is doing in your life. It's really, really cool. Um, and I'm honored to be a part of it. I, uh, I actually wrote a blog post, yeah, back in, uh, right before the preview season, before our first preview service, I wrote a blog post um, saying, what do you expect when you came to Hope Brooklyn? And I went back and read it in preparation for today. Um, and it felt like I was reading my sixth grade journals. <laughs> Anyone ever kept uh, like a journal as a middle schooler and go back and read it? And you're like, oh, I felt so many things. <laughs> and I love dashboard confessional. <laughs> Vindicated. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that might be my karaoke song. <laughs> um, but it was interesting reading it back because I had sort of five things. Like, this is the five things to expect when you come to Hope Brooklyn. And Not much has changed. However, I noticed in those five things that we listed that there was a, they were starting to be distilled. It was the first um, sprouting of who we are. What I mean by that is we didn't have our tagline then. I don't know if you can believe it. When we first started gathering here in the preview season, we didn't know, we didn't say explicitly that wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. That took, that came later. It had to be sort of distilled out of our community. We didn't have our three pillars yet. Like we, we knew it, it was sort of, um, it, was, it, was, it was part of sort of like burgeoning inside of us, but we didn't say that we are crowds and disciples, that we're a community of the story, and that we eat together face to face. 
So it's just really, really interesting as I look back on that blog post um, of what God was stirring inside of us and who we've become. And I might have to write another blog post and read it back five years from now and then cringe, you know, at who we were then, which is the beauty of the journey. And so what I want to do today is I kind of, I sort of titled this very uh, unoriginally, what we've learned in one year. I want to look back at the blog post and sort of be like, all right, this is what we've learned. This is what God has taught us. Um, And some stuff will sound familiar and some stuff might be new. So will you join me in prayer and then we'll jump in. God, my heart is full. My heart is full as I look at my brothers and sisters in this room and people who are joining us for the first time, people who are just getting connected and I'm just really moved by who you are. You are a God of miracles. You are a God who brings the dead to life. You're a God who brings something out of nothing. And so we just stand, Lord, with gratefulness in our heart and praise on our lips. Some of us uh, know you. Some of us aren't sure who you are. Some of us thought we knew you, but now we kind of don't trust you. We're coming from all points in the spectrum, and you are so pleased with that. Your word is the same to each one of us. I am so glad you're here. Come with your full self. So as we celebrate our first birthday, Jesus, we say that it's only because of you You've done it. You, you started this church. This was your idea. And we're just honored that we could be a part of it. Bless this time. Bless this family. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so what have we learned this last year? <laughs> Number one thing we've learned, the table is still our greatest symbol. The table is still our greatest symbol. Uh, the Greek word for symbol is symboling which is a compound word, means soon. Come on, it's not gonna be a one-year anniversary with that little Greek, all right? Let's be real. Means soon, with, and balo, which means to throw or to throw together. So sumbalain means to throw two things together. Two, at one point, two disparate things are now one, and they represent something more. It's another way of saying the whole is more than the sum of its parts. So you were to be asked, what is the Statue of Liberty? You could say it's copper, it's steel, it's thousands of hours of of labor, of people putting it together. That is what the Statue of Liberty is. Or you could say it's freedom, it's hope, it's opportunity, right? It's the, the, the sum of the parts. The whole is more than the sum of its parts. It represents something else. The table for us as the church and for us as Hope Brooklyn is still our greatest symbol. It represents a shared meal. Oh no, it doesn't represent a shared meal. It is a shared meal, <laughs> We come to the table and we share a meal together. What it represents is new family. It represents coming home. It represents grace, forgiveness, acceptance. The table symbolizes God's story and our role in it. So Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11, he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I always marvel at this. Because if you think about it, Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's about to be crucified unjustly. There's a lot of pain and sorrow in his soul that's happening. And yet he still has the presence of mind and the wherewithal to, to leave his 12 disciples with one last teaching, one last action. He institutes something. And amazingly, he could have, if you think about it, he could have instituted anything, right? He could have said, hey, here's what I'm leaving you with. This is a sacred dance, which I want you to perform every time you gather. He could have said that. He could have said, here's this one song I want you to sing every time you gather. That could be the center point of the church, but that's not what he does. He brings together bread and wine, the most ordinary of elements. And he says, all I want you to do is come to the table, take this bread, take this cup, remember me, and that's it. I'll do the rest. The world has been changed by Jesus. God has done it and is doing it. We are simply invited to the table to join into the new family, to join into the new world, and to learn exactly what that means. And it's interesting because even when you look in scripture, we look both uh, in Israel's scriptures in the Old Testament and you look in ours in the New Testament, the, the image for the final day when Christ returns, when evil is eradicated, when heaven and earth unite as one. The image is usually of a wedding banquet. It's of a feast. Anna and I film weddings uh, for a living. Well, one of our jobs, well, one of my jobs, her job. <laughs> um, wedding parties are so much fun. Anyone love wedding parties? Wedding parties are the best, well, the best ones. You can have some bad ones, <laughs> but the best form why are wedding parties so much fun? Because people are coming to this space from all across the world and they're coming for one reason. What are they coming to do? To remember. They're coming and the best weddings is you're sitting around the table and you're like, remember what happened when we were 12 and we got in trouble that one time and you're laughing and you're remembering. The, the worst weddings, the worst parties are when you come to forget, you come to escape right? And you can do that too. But the best ones, the, the image of the wedding feast is where we come and we remember what it's like to be family. We remember what God has done. And that's the image we get. Like for the life of me, I understand it's hard on the front end for, for to accept this whole exclusive thing of like, Jesus is, is the way, the life, and the truth. But on the back end, what you get as a Christian is awesome. <laughs> you get this idea that the world is heading to one big party, one big wedding feast where God has set the table. He's invited everyone free of charge through the host, the guest of honor, Jesus himself. And we get to come and share in the joy and the peace and the rest and the feast, the merriment. I don't know if I said that word right. The merriment, whatever. Um, and that's, that's pretty remarkable. The table is our greatest symbol. He has not asked us to save people. He's not asked us to be the morality police of people. He's not asked us even to be an apologist and to defend the faith, to make Christianity seem reasonable. He's simply asked us to come to the table with open hands, eat and drink, remember him, and to invite others to the table with us, to this incredible feast that is free of charge. And he's not even asked us to come perfectly. He's just asked us to come. I remember one of our first preview services 
it was like the perfect storm. Everything that could go wrong went wrong. <laughs> Technical, like the slides were off. Of course, it was none of you guys. No, no, no. Uh, slides were off. Technically, we were off. The sermon was just not coming out how I wanted it to. Like, it just felt like we were stumbling to the table. And I still remember as I was serving communion and people were coming forward, I just felt the Holy Spirit say, I am pleased. And it nearly broke me there. Like, I almost started crying. I'm thinking, what? We've had lots of better Sundays where we felt more excellent, where we felt technically on, where the sermon felt better prepared. And you haven't said, I'm pleased then. But I think it was important (laughs) to remember that the conditions for the table is none of us earn this table. None of us earn this invitation. He invites. And it's good to stumble into the table every now and again, or over and over. Because when we stumble to the table, we finally get to remember what the table represents, what it symbolizes. God's saying, I am pleased with you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Come eat and drink free of charge. Get to know your family. That's what the table is. The table is still our greatest symbol. The table, point number two, is still a controversial place. The table is still a controversial place. Tim Keller writes, he goes, in the Near East, uh, meaning Jesus' day, in the Near East, to share a meal with someone is a guarantee of peace, of trust, of fraternity and forgiveness. The shared table symbolizes a shared life. Jesus was not only breaking the law, he was destroying the very structure of Jewish society. Meal sharing occurred with such regularity that Jesus was accused of being a drunkard and a glutton. The call of Jesus is fundamentally connected to being a table companion, eating and drinking with Jesus in whom God's merciful manner with sinners is manifested. So to come to the table that Jesus has set is to make others squirmy, (laughs) make them a little squeamish. And the reason why is because when you come to this table, you're breaking down the false lines of separation that human beings put up against one another. You're breaking down the false lines of separation that when we step outside, we put up against one another. You can see that in the charge. Jesus was called, he was labeled a glutton and a drunkard. Why? Well, because he was so unable to be classified. In Jewish society, he was behaving like a rabbi. He had authoritative teaching. He had a knowledge of the scriptures that other rabbis didn't have. Not only that, but he had power. Like there were miracles. He was healing people. So of course, people are thinking, whoa, you are anointed by God. You are absolutely special. We're going to put you at the top. But what he consistently did was he ate with people who were not at the top. He shared a meal, which is a shared life, with people who were ranked further toward the bottom. So they didn't know what to do with him. So they called him a glutton and a drunkard. I love the way Stanley Hauerwas put it, which again, if it's going to be our first birthday, I got to quote SH somewhere in here, all right? Jesus's feeding of the 5,000 is best understood in contrast to Herod's banquet. Jesus provides food for those without food solely because they are hungry. Herod provides food for those who are not without food as a demonstration of his power. That's good, isn't it? You see the controversy. Jesus is throwing a dinner party that people aren't accustomed to. We're accustomed to dinner parties where you sort of pay people back, where you eat with people in your same status level, your same level of power. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus, he has no pretense in his dinner parties. When you come to the table, we're all coming as equals. No matter what our economic status is, no matter what our educational status is, 
no matter what our life experience is, no matter what society might label us as, we enter into this space as 100% equals. Even in this space, the, the different roles that we share as parts of the body, none are better than the others. None are better than the others. We enter as equals to this table and receive the same gift of grace. And that makes people squirmy because what do we do with that? That breaks down societal structures. Jesus ate with pastors. He ate with corrupt businessmen and women. He ate with groups of addicts. I love this. On his 12 disciples and his closest friends who did ministry with him, one was a zealot, which is like a political affiliation, and one was a tax collector. That'd be like saying that he ate with someone who voted for Bernie and was convinced that if Bernie was elected, he would save the world. And someone saying who voted for Trump and is convinced that Trump would save the world. And he goes to both and says, both of you come to my table. Yeah, radical. He ate with prostitutes. He didn't just eat with them. Prostitutes were allowed to touch him, which you wouldn't do if you're a rabbi. They were allowed to wash his feet. And he didn't seem to think anything about it. He ate with the mentally challenged. He ate with those who practice other religions. And I'm not even talking about like the noble other religions. I'm talking about the weird cultish stuff. Like those who are like an infinitesimal fraction of the world practices that. And we're like, I don't know what to do with this. He ate with them and thought nothing of it. It's crazy. He seems to have no sense of shame or propriety. He just sees people and eats with them and heals and teaches. And people are like, what do we do with you? His message was the same. You're loved. I am for you. God is for you. You can come and eat free of charge. See, the table for the world is a symbol of power. The table for us, for the church, is a symbol of powerlessness. And that's what makes us so controversial. Because we come to this place utterly powerless, saying we are invited by God. We have no right to be here, but he has invited all of us. It's the symbol that destroys the certainty of the certain, those false lines of separation, and allows for the beauty of the story. This symbol destroys the certainty of the certain and allows for the beauty of the story, which is why we say wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. It's controversial. Those false lines of separation, which we step out this door and we know we can see them, they're broken down. But also the table is controversial because it breaks down the real lines of separation, the real ones that humans put up against one another. In Ephesians 2, verse 14, Paul writes, for he, meaning Jesus, he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, the two groups meaning Jews and non-Jews, Jews and Gentiles, he's made them one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between them. It's a really radical thought. The Jewish people are a fascinating people. They're one of the, the, the I was thinking about this, and I don't have stats for it, but like, they're an ancient people who still exist today, which there aren't many. But not only do they exist, but they exist with their culture intact, their religious identity intact. And what's so radical about this, not just that they exist and they exist with their identity intact, but they've been scattered over the face of the world. They don't exist in the, the region where they, where they grew up. They've been scattered and they're, yet they still have a co cohesive sense of identity. And that's incredible. But the way they sort of kept that and fostered that is they had a distrust 
of non-Jews. They weren't allowed to eat with non-Jews. That's what's so radical about the book of Acts, which tells the birth of the church, because the first Christians were all Jews. And then in Acts chapter 10, uh, Peter, which is one of the leaders of, of the first Jewish Christians, he has a dream telling him that he can eat foods that they otherwise would not eat. They're considered unclean. And then he realizes that when he wakes up from the dream that God means the Gentiles, that they have been brought into the family as well. And there's such history of hatred, of persecution, of distrust, of animosity between Jews and non-Jews. And yet, those are real lines of separation. Those are not false lines. Those are real lines of pain and real stories that Jesus says, because of me, they've come down and you've entered into one family together. So what are our own dividing walls of separation? What are our own real lines that have come down? Economics, mental illness, politics, race, culture, histories of abuse, those are real things. Those are real stories with real pain. But in Christ, in this family, those have been broken down. And now we get to learn what it is to work toward reconciliation because of Jesus. So the Koreans and the Japanese are part of the same family. The black and the white. England, Spain, and Portugal with pretty much everyone else. Catholics and Protestants. Nazis and Jews. And Christ, those who have deep levels of animosity are brought to the same table. And he went to those who were far and said, come and eat. And he went to those over there and said, come and eat. And the church, this is what's, what's not said, but the church, those around Jesus's table are those who don't want to be in the same family. <laughs> they don't want this gift. But yet, that's the only family there is. It's the one where both false lines and real lines are down. And now we get to work toward healing. So when we look at ourselves, when we look at Brooklyn, we can see these real lines of separation, matters of housing and displacement, matters of privilege, matters of resources and access to resources, matters of policing. And these are all matters that we want to turn away from. And we want to turn away from them. Why? Because we, the pain is too real. We're hurt. We're angry. We're embarrassed. We know we all play a part in this in some way. But amazingly, amazingly, Jesus is like, I'm not embarrassed. I'm not embarrassed at all. We're at the table now. Let's figure out. Let's work together. Here in this space, we get to learn what it is to be reconciled, to be family. Outside, they say we have nothing in common. They say that we hurt one another. And we do. We do hurt one another. But here in this space, we get to learn about the ways we've hurt one another. And we get to say, please forgive me. And if Jesus, the host, isn't ashamed of your presence here and isn't ashamed of my presence here, then I don't have to be ashamed either. We get to work toward that space. At the table, Jesus says, let's tell each other our real stories of real pain, of real anger, of real hurt. And then we get to learn what it is to be family. Because the truth of the matter is that all of us have been broken by this world and all of us are breaking this world. That's what's true. And if there's any hope for the, the reconciliation of the world, for the restoration of the world, it comes 
entirely through the table of Jesus. Comes through him. He is the one who broke down the wall of separation, the wall of hostility. At his table, the new world begins. The new creation begins. The new family begins. So that's the second one. The table is still our greatest symbol. The table is still a controversial place. Number three, at the table, scars are still kissed. And this plays off a number two a bit. And it's actually when we were starting off, I told this story a bunch because it was really pivotal for my own theology and my own understanding of grace. Um, and I kind of, I didn't drift away from it, but you can't tell a story every Sunday and, you know, um, get the same reaction or it hits the same way. But I want to tell it again because we probably got some, some new people. Um, so, so I was born with a condition called Golden Heart Syndrome. Uh, effectively, if you saw the movie Wonder, that was kind of my story a little bit. Um, they don't, doctors don't know what caused it. They just know there was a, a glitch in my development. So I was born with a bunch of brokenness in my body, required a lot of sur surgeries growing up. And uh, unbeknownst to, my, to me, um, I developed an overcompensation complex, right? We all do that because I felt intrinsically unlovable in my, in my body. Uh, I resolved to be the best at everything I set my hands to as like, this is why you can love me. So I wanted to be you know, the best student or the best athlete or like the nicest person or whatever. Um, that's how I developed in this world. And so when I met Anna, there was a night when, uh, when we were dating and, and we were embracing and she started to kiss the left side of my face. And the left side of my face is where all my scars are. It's where a lot of my surgeries happen, very bumpy. Um, it's, I, yeah. And as she was embracing it, I didn't know this at the time, but I sort of pulled out of her grasp and, I, and, and she sort of pulls back. She's like, stop that. And I didn't know what she was talking about. I was like, well, what do you mean, stop? And she goes, do you know you always do this? Every time I try to kiss your scars, you don't let me. I didn't know that. You either try to redirect my lips back onto yours, or you start, you know, telling me how beautiful I am and how much you love me. Do you not think, she asked me this, do you not think I see you? All of you. Do you not think I love all of you? Let me kiss you. And I was stunned. I, I broke down. And I still can't even tell the story without feeling something in here. I broke down. Because I didn't. <laughs> I thought in my head that I was tricking her. That I was through my virtue or my personality or whatever it was, she, she liked that part of me and therefore she was overlooking the bad parts of me. But that wasn't it at all. She saw all of me. And she knew there wasn't, I wasn't Russell without these scars and without the stories they told. And so then what she had me do <laughs> is sit back and just let her kiss my scars. And it was the most exposing, vulnerable thing I had ever felt to that point. It was so hard to just sit there and let her kiss me because I felt so ugly and so unworthy of her kisses. And amazingly, we've actually continued this practice in our marriage when I'm having bad days or when I feel like I'm just breaking it and not, I'm just not getting it. Or when I'm stressed, she'll be like, all right, lean back. <laughs> and she'll start kissing and it calms me. See, we live in a world that says hide your scars, don't we? We live in a world that says don't let people see where you're broken. Don't show it. Because if you do, they'll tear you up, spit you out. And it's true. 
But the miracle of the gospel, the miracle of this story, the miracle of this table is when we come here, it's like we're coming and saying, here it is. And Jesus goes, ah, and kisses. What's that moment in your own life? What's that deep wound? That, that season, that addiction, that thing which you're like, this, this is too ugly. This can't be, there's no way it can be kissed. And if you would allow me, if you would consider it and allow me to speak on behalf of Jesus, yes, it stinking can. It can and it will. And that actually is what the table is all about. At the table, scars are kissed. You hear the word of God, which says there is no amount of brokenness in yourself, whether it's been done to you or whether you've done it to yourself or done it to others, or probably all three of those things, if we're being honest. There's no amount that is too ugly for the lips of Christ. And what's so amazing about this new family is we get to be the lips of Christ to one another. We're gonna start a new practice of every day we're gonna come in and we're gonna kiss the person on our right, just the left side. <laughs> but that's the gospel. At the table, scars of the world's injustice, scars of people's decisions, scars of our own decisions, scars of our thoughts about past churches or past Christians, we show up wounded, unsure, and here we hear the good news of God, that you are loved in your uncertainty. God is with you in your pain. In Psalm 31, in your anguish of soul, God is with you. And if you'll allow him, I know it's super tender, but if you'll allow him, all he wants to do is kiss it. That's all he desires. God is with us in our brokenness, kissing and making us whole. And the first blog post ended here. And this is all good and true and right. But something I realized in this past year is that it's incomplete. There's another step. And I saw it, we saw it, and we talked about it, but I didn't realize how important it was. And so I wanna add one more step for us, a challenge for Hope Brooklyn in this next year, for you, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, but also for us as a family. And this is the challenge. If the table is still our greatest symbol, if the table is still a controversial place, if at the table, scars are still kissed, and then fourth and lastly, at the table, scars are turned into glory. The, the sources of our shame become sources of joy. What do I mean by that? Well, in John chapter 20, after Jesus is resurrected from the grave, this is what it reads. It says, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and he said, peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side and the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. See, the reason why we can come unafraid of our own wounds, unafraid of our own scars and brokenness is because God now has scars that's what it means when he says he showed them his hands and his side. The hands where the nails went through. The side where the soldiers put the spear. He showed it to them. And the disciples were overjoyed. And here's what that means. 
on Friday, those scars, those wounds, they were marks of shame. People walked by Jesus and they hurled insults at him. I hurled insults at him. I said, you saved others and you can't save yourself. What a Messiah, what a, what a savior. They hurled insults. The, the scars, the wounds were marks of shame. But on Sunday, when he came out of the tomb, they became sources of joy. He showed them again to his disciples and his disciples were astonished. This last year, we worked at becoming a community that could trust Jesus, no matter where we are, that could hear the good news that you don't have to have it all figured out. And that's always true. That will always be true. I don't have it all figured out. There's so many questions I have. But we worked this last year trusting Jesus enough, trusting each other enough to show our real faces, to show our wounds. And I think we've done that well. Obviously, that will never stop because new people are coming all the time. And because, like I said, Anna and I still have to do it. I'd be like, all right, okay, go ahead, kiss, kiss. That still has to happen. But that's not the final step. The final step is when it's not just the kisses of our scars, but the resurrection of our scars. When the scars, which once brought us such shame, don't bring us shame anymore. But it's not even when we're at peace with our scars. That's not it either. The gospel isn't fully complete in us until those moments, those experiences, those, those addictions, those things in us start bringing life to others. Till they become sources of joy and resurrection to others. It's when death is turned into glory. Then death has been swallowed up in victory. We actually made a video for our launch last year and it was on Easter and uh, we showed it, but we actually showed it at the start of service, which as you know, the New York City thing, like no one's here at the start of service. So not a lot of people saw it. And interestingly enough, um, it wasn't the right time. We were about a year early in this video because it's actually what this sermon is about, this last point is about. You might recognize the actors, they're very famous people, um, but I wanna show this video again and, uh, and then we'll, we'll finish up. So take a look. There are moments of complete clarity when heaven meets earth in a way so obvious and so beautiful that everything makes sense. The confusing no longer confounds and the unclear comes into focus. But these moments don't seem to be the norm. Rather, there are other moments, many more moments when nothing makes sense. When everything you have come to believe is called into question. The line between doubt and faith no longer exists. The darkness more visible than the light, color dissolved into gray. It is when the pain of yesterday is so strong and present, and the questions of tomorrow seem to be all there is. When those moments of clarity feel like shadows, and the moments of confusion the real thing. This, this is death. But resurrection says something else. Resurrection says those moments of clarity, those are the real thing. That doubt and ambiguity are not our final destination, but are the conduits through which we enter into the real. Resurrection says that everything, no matter how real it feels, 
no matter how much it hurts, no matter how deep the wound goes. Resurrection says that in the end it is temporary, that God makes all things new, that heaven once achieved will work backwards and turn even death to glory. There is no wound, says Jesus, no amount of brokenness, no moment of confusion or doubt or despair that can escape me. All of it will be swallowed up. The old will die, the new will rise, and I will have the final word. For if death could not hold me, it will not hold you. Can you not see it? Do you not perceive it? Streams are flowing in the desert. Look. He does something new. See, at the table, we begin to experience resurrection. Maybe you caught a line. It's a line I love from C.S. Lewis. And he says, heaven, once achieved, works backwards and turns even death to glory. It's not that in the gospel, when the old dies, it's done away with, and Jesus comes out of the tomb with a perfectly new body. No, he comes out with scars. He comes out with marks of the life of marks of what happened. But now, whereas before they were marks of shame, they are marks of joy. Heaven has worked backwards and turned even that deepest amount of shame into glory. The scar is real, the death is real, but the resurrection is more real. And that is our hope. The resurrection is more real and that is our hope. It's just tough to see right now. You get glimpses of it. You get pieces of it. You get faints of a, faint smells. You can see the death, but the resurrection is what we're headed toward. I remember I saw a, a woman, a pastor, speak one time from Boston, and um, and she was telling her story. And growing up, she had a very tough childhood, really tough upbringing, um, in and out of jail a lot. And one time, this is what she describes as like her, her rock bottom moment. Um, she's about to get released uh, from overnight or something. And one of the guards looks at her and goes, hey, I know you. And she's like, really? Where? From where? And he's like, from here. You were here last week. And at that moment, she was shocked. She just saw her life flash before her eyes. She was like, oh my gosh, I'm known at the jail. Goodness. And so began a long, long journey of, of learning who she is, cleaning her life up, became a Christian, met Jesus, um, became a pastor. And then years later, because she had sort of been in jail before, I don't remember exactly how it happened, but essentially she was asked to maybe start a prison ministry. So she did. So she started going into to jails and, and ministering to people. And um, she tells the story that one time she was leaving and as she's leaving, she heard someone cry out behind her, hey, you, are you the forgiveness lady? And she turns around, and she's like, me? <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you're the forgiveness lady? And she's like, I guess that's what they're calling me. And he's like, I'm coming to see you next week. 
So she laughs and she's walking back to her car and as she's walking, she hears God say, hey, remember that day so long ago when you didn't want to be known here? You're known here, but now you're known as the forgiveness lady. And see, that's, that's resurrection. That's the point of the gospel. It's not just when she puts that part of her life behind her, ashamed of it. It's not just when she knows she's loved there, which she is. It's not just when she knows that Jesus isn't ashamed of that point in her life, that he's met her there. It's when Jesus says, all right, now come and let's use those marks of shame to be marks of life for others. Let's set other people free. Let's make other people live directly from the point of your greatest despair and shame. And that, that is the gospel. That's the invitation. And that's where we're going as Hope Brooklyn. Those places which you're like, God couldn't possibly love me here. He does. We want to spend some time earning your trust and kissing you in those places, but then you're not fully done yet until those places become the sources of joy and life for others. That's what we're celebrating today in our first birthday. That's the invitation for us. So would you stand together and sing this as a community? Thanks again for tuning into this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.